Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm in Hammersmith with my colleagues Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Martin Collier. Hi, And Jasper Merrison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And joining us for this episode in person is music industry legend Rob Dickens. Welcome, Rob. Hello, Barney. <laughs> <laughs> in the 27 years that Rob worked for Warner Brothers here in the UK, he signed and shaped the careers of some of the biggest stars in the history of pop music, including Prince, Madonna, Cher, Enya, Rod Stewart, many more. We'll be talking about some, if not all, of those artists, and we'll be listening to clips from an audio interview with the late, great Leon Russell. First, Rob... Let's go back to the beginning of your of your pop life to to cite the Prince song, because you were sort of embedded in the music business in in many ways, weren't you? Yeah, I, it's all I've ever known. Basically, my my father, who in the after the war and into the early fifties, worked on layout and printing at the Melody Maker, and in 1952. A guy called Morris Kinn bought the Accordion Times and Music Express and <laughs> wanted to sort of do a rival paper to really make. And he hired Dad to do the advertising, the layout, the printing, all the kind of technical stuff. And so from 1952, so before I, my memory starts, there was an enemy in the house. <laughs> and when I was at school, of course, it was, I got the enemy the day before it hit the newsstand. So through the 60s, in my teenage years, you know, Rob had... So I became like a leader of the music <laughs> people at school because I had the NME. So, yes, it's, 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 it goes right back to then. And also, Dad did the Poll Winners concert. So he was the kind of active runner of the Poll Winners concert. So I met the Beatles and the Stones when I was 12. I remember being in the corridor backstage at Wembley with my dad and, and I was in my school uniform and uh, he said oh boys boys come say hello to my son and it was the Beatles so <laughs> I go back to 1962 to, to meet the Beatles so constantly there was that the other thing he did is you know as I was growing up the review singles so it, you know when they reviewed the singles every week they would just leave them in the office so he'd gather them up and we're mm -hmm. talking probably 12 records a week came out in those days. Yeah. So he'd come back with a briefcase and just empty them on the table. My brother and I would 
sort of divvy them up. Divvy them. Yeah, so we, <laughs> so we had a label. You know, we had yeah. a labels again before they were in the shop. So we had. I remember you know, when Please Please Me came in, but mm. so it was before. And in those days, radio didn't play up front of release. So you know, we we were hearing every new record before it actually hit the shops. So. And then as I got older and I, I read about Bob Dylan, I was 13, and I said, oh, I'd love Freewheeling by Bob Dylan. So, you know, he just rang up his friend at CBS and <laughs> came home with Freewheeling. So, you know, I, I had a kind of free access to albums as well as singles. So you were, wow. you were, you were like in the market for freebies long before the first before I knew, journalist before came I, along. Before I knew what freebie meant. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was just my method of attaining music. Yeah. Did you yeah. ever consider another career? Yeah. I, well, my mother, because, you know, I'm, I'm sure we got to my brother, but my brother was, my father was music business, my brother was music business, and it's all-encompassing. You know, you have no life. Mm. You commit to the music business. And I went to university and I studied politics and Russian. And she thought, well, at least, you know, the, the, the first boy in the, the first family member of Dickens going to university, at least he won't be in the music business. <laughs> <laughs> but, but at university, I was, I was social secretary for two years, chairman of events, chairman of the folk club, chairman of the jazz club, chairman of the film society. Yeah, nothing to do with music at all. I kind of, and I had my, you know, the, the president of the student union had an office, and I had an office with a red telephone, which, in, you know, in 1969 was quite something. <laughs> and I used to, you know, I had this office with all posters up and, you know, stuff, so... I kind of spent most of my time in that office. Which university was this? Loughborough. Which, of course, was a, lot of, a lot of gigs were put on Loughborough. Is that, well, you yeah. must have promoted a lot of those. I, well, I did Pink Floyd, I did Faces, Motley Hoople, Paul Free. Earth. Earth. I did Earth, yeah. <laughs> Earth. Yeah. Later, Black Sabbath. Is that right? But it was a Wednesday night and they were still called Earth. Gosh, you've, <laughs> you've done your Earth. research. Yeah. <laughs> Earth. They, they were managed by someone in Birmingham and he kind of kept ringing us up because when you had the red phone, you got phone calls from managers and agents. You know, trying to put again because it was <laughs> the hall held, I think, about 1,800 people. Wow. So um, that was a proper gig. On yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm oh, yeah, no, yeah, it was, it was, a, really, it was a gig. I'm, I'm as a melody maker reader in the late sixties. Loughborough's one of those regular big student venues. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah and we had of. and Chris Briggs was at Leicester University, so we had this like eighteen mile clause. So if you played Loughborough, you couldn't play Leicester within, <laughs> I think, six months or a year. So it was like you know because I remember he got the Who. And I, so I couldn't get the Who because he had the same thing back to us. So. Even your brother, though, though your brother had signed the Who. And yeah, but my brother was 17, 18. My, <laughs> my, my dad always said about my brother, he's like, if he signed you, once you fire him, you're going to be famous because the Who, <laughs> you know, he did Maximar and all that stuff. Yeah. He did the transition from high numbers. So by the time you got to the Who selling lots of records... Yeah. They fired him because he was like a teenager. He didn't he couldn't <laughs> do a tour of America. He couldn't do you know couldn't yeah, do anything yeah. like that. And then cool, Jimi well. Hendrix fired him after the first. You know, when, once he'd done Monterey, you know, he saw the world as being bigger than what a nineteen-year-old agent could do. Yeah, yeah. So you know, my dad's thing was always Barry signs you're going to be famous when you fire him. <laughs> Our last guest was at Monterey and found the Who so sort of overwhelmingly. 
noisy and violent, she she hid under the stage because she she thought something <laughs> terrible was going to Ellen Sander. <laughs> well, I mean, the great thing about the Who at the Marquee, because we used to go in the back. So I'd come from school, put my blazer in my duffel bag, meet Barry at the office in Wardour Street, and then we'd go into the back of the in the back door of the Who. You know, Roger would be kind of head of a screwdriver in his microphone. And, you know, they, they, they were doing their own tech. <laughs> and Pete used to break probably three Rickenbackers a show. They weren't earning any money. Just the three. And <laughs> so after sound check, we all went to the pub. And because I was 15, everyone was standing outside the pub. So it was the ship and the intrepid fox. And, and because they didn't like each other, you'd actually be with, you know, Roger and John at one and Pete and Keith at the other. <laughs> but, you know, we used to hang out with them before the gig. And, into, and I remember Kit Lambert saying, Peter, could you not break quite so many guitars tonight? Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner. And Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Um, you know, we're really losing money on this. <laughs> and, uh, and then Pete broke three guitars that night. Just as he not said anything, he probably would have broken one. But it was, it's, I mean, I saw the Who right through their career and those marquee days were just so superior. I bet. Because it became pantomime yeah. quite quickly, you know, when he had faux amplifiers and things. Yes. You know, when you smashed an amplifier and a guitar, they were real and on stage, so... You are getting an extraordinary insight into the business from management, putting on gigs, all of those things. I mean, is that why you're so successful as a record man I, t- I there's you know I teach as well as loving the music I, know, I teach A&R at Berkeley College of Music I'm a guest lecturer there and I have been for eight years and before that I taught you know University of the Arts and London Metropolitan 
All I ever wanted to be was either a record producer or an A&R man. I loved records. I loved the whole recording process. Huge fan of the Beach Boys, you know, that period and what the Beatles were doing. So I loved production. And we went to see The Birds, I think, in 1965 or 66 at the Lyceum. And all my friends went, they, they were so terrible that night. Mm. They said, God, they're dreadful, you know, forget the birds. And I went, why? <laughs> they said they were terrible. And I went, so what? They make brilliant records. Yeah, yeah. And I would say at that point, you know, looking back, that was the key point when it wasn't about the live acts. And also I'd seen the best live acts I was ever going to see. <laughs> it was really about the recording process. Yeah. So that's what I wanted to be. But I happened to be good at business and money and negotiation. And so, and also when I went into the record business, I thought to run a record company. I was looking at Chris Blackwell, right. Simon Draper, Armit Ertigan. They all made records. Yeah, yeah. And so you thought, well, to be a successful head of a record company, which, you know, is in the back of your head is maybe if I make some great records, mm -hmm. I can run a record company. I didn't realise, you know, that you had to do all the other stuff. But as I did it, when I was, I first started in publishing, in the first week I said to the, you know, the head of business affairs, give me a few contracts. And I took them home and I read them and I came back and asked questions. So I, I understood contracts from age 21. So it was that yeah. thing of... Yeah. The round, uh, yeah, the whole... But, but you know, A&R talent falls on very different people in different ways. I mean, everybody, everybody thinks they know what a hit record is. Very few people ha have the chance of hearing it in its raw state, whether that's live or a demo. Mm -hmm. But everyone thinks they know a hit. But, you know, as I always say, only some of us are right. <laughs> 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 I mean, a friend of mine you know, from university days said, your job's easy. He said, when I hear a record on the radio, I know whether it's going to be a hit or not. I said... Before it gets on the radio, <laughs> there's an awful lot of filters that's yes, already yeah, gone yeah. through. Yes, yes. But it's that thing of being able to see something in very, very raw material. Mm -hmm. And so, how do you teach A and R? Well, I start with saying I can't. I, I yeah. can't teach you A and R. <laughs> it's, a, it's a gift. A and R is a gift that is bestowed on people. It's a bit like voices. Mm. You know, voices. Are, you, you, yeah. Rod Stewart has a voice. A Scottish person born in Crouch End has a voice, you know, like Sam Cooke. Yes. You know, why? Paul Carrick has a voice. You know, you have all these different things. Yeah, yeah. But mm -hmm. who's it's bestowed on are all different mm -hmm. people. Joe Cocker, you know, it's, you don't automatically, you know, look like you're going to get it. Van Morrison. Yeah. And A&R is the same as a gifted pianist mm -hmm. or something like that. You just have that, that, that sixth sense of this is special. Mm. Yes. And so I, I tell them I can't teach that, but if you've got it, I can teach you how to use it. If you haven't got it, I can teach you to have a career. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, that's how we do it. But we analyse songs, mm. we analyse productions, you know, and I tell stories because, you know, I've made so many records. Yeah. And, you know, I've executive produced, which is kind of like A&Ring. You know, Enya's hits and shares and Rod Stewart's and, you know, quite a few people in the cause. So I've got involved in, so I can actually teach by example, saying this is how we did Believe by Share, yes. mm. as opposed to the other teachers there 
kind of teaching theory. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I teach the theory and then I give them a personal example and I say to them, have we got time for a story? And they all go, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I just do stories. Um, let the other people do all the boring stuff. Very good, very good. When did you first join Warners? What year did you first join Warners? September the 20th, 71. <laughs> I love the September the 20th. <laughs> well, that's a big day in your yeah. life. So before run... that, you were in publishing. Were you in pub- no, that, no, was no, publishing. that was yes. publishing. publishing. Right. Which I didn't know. I mean... When I finished university, you know, when you're waiting for your, your, yeah, yeah. your grades, I thought, what do I want to do? And I thought, I either want to be a writer, mm-hmm. I want to be in the music business, the film business, or the magazine business. Right. So I wrote letters to all the magazine, IPC mm-hmm. and all these magazine places. I wrote letters to all the film companies, I wrote letters to all the record companies saying, yeah. you know, I've done this and I was social sick and da 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 and I got no replies from the film companies at all. Mm-hmm. I got a reply from Polydor to be a salesman in Birmingham. Right. And I kind of thought, you know, <laughs> that's hardly going to be a career starter. Is it? <laughs> so I kind of turned that down. I got a refusal from Kinney, which was the parent the, company, the precursor of, of WEA. Yes. Yeah. So I got a refusal from that, which I've kept. I have that letter <laughs> saying, I'm sorry, we don't have anything for you. And I got an interview at IPC for Honey Petticoat and 19 mm-hmm. as a writer. Yeah, yeah. So I went to work there for about eight days. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, my stories were, you know, it's very hard because you had to write down. Yeah, yeah. You know, for like for teenage audience. girls yeah, on yeah. the tube. That's kind of from the audience. For Honey and 19. So I, I wrote articles on keeping a big dog, <laughs> rust, Rastafarianism, and what was the other one? There was something, they, they were kind of nonsense things. I, well, you know, the Rasta thing was, was of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, you know, I sketched those out and, then, and I noticed that everyone was a woman. You know, the editor was a woman, yeah, the yeah. assistant editor was a woman, the features writers were all women. And I kind of thought, this is a woman's world. A man's not going to work. And this is 71. Yes. A man's not going to be able to work in this area. And then I got this thing from Warner Brothers Music, the publishing company. Yeah, yeah. Saying, we've got a job opening. Would you like to come for an interview? So I, you know, went home and I said to my dad, you know, what's publishing? <laughs> I have no idea what this is. Yeah, yeah. So he explained it to me. And I went for the interview. And they just got the Bob Dylan catalogue. Ah. And then the, the boss who was interviewing me said, we've just got the Bob Dylan catalogue from, you know, Leeds Music. And they've not sent us any titles, just first lines. And he, and so I said, oh, show me the first lines. And I said, well, that's this, that's this. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and then he hired me. Yes, I started. But in those days, Kinney Warners was so small. We were right. in the same office building. Right. And then on my first day at work the promotion guys at the record company one of them was ill and one of them was away on holiday mm-hmm. so they sent me straight down to the record company as a promotion man who'd never promoted anything <laughs> um record wise yeah so i was suddenly there and yeah my first day like my first day i was kind of really nervous because yeah, i got sure. to work for the first time and i said to my i said to my dad you know i just hope i can do this and he said you know most people in the music business are stupid so 
you're not, so you'll do well. And I thought, <laughs> I just thought, that's a dad to a son on his first day at work. Yeah. So I go to work, they send me down, and within an hour I'm in a promotion meeting. Mm-hmm. And there's like probably 15 people in this meeting, like artist relations, everyone's in this meeting. And they get to Riders on the Storm. Right. Just gone in the charts. So the head of promotion, just remain nameless, said, um, <laughs> said, okay, the door's in at number 20. We're going to fly them in. We're going to do Top of the Pops. We're going to do interviews. <laughs> and, da, da, da. and I thought, no, Rob, you've been in the music business for an hour and a half. <laughs> Shut up. And he carries on, carries on. And I just thought, this is so ridiculous. But shut up. And everyone looking at everyone's face and they're all listening. And, I, and then I went, um, um, Des, sorry. Um, <laughs> Cats out the bag. Yeah. yeah. Um, the reason they got in the charts is, is Jim Morrison died. Oh, for God's and, sake. And he went, oh, shit, and hit his forehead. And, and I thought, Dad... He's right. I always thought if I ever wrote a book, first chapter would be called Dad. Dad, you're 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 right. right. (laughs) That's fantastic. And then in the first week, we went to pick up the doors. They still brought them in. Yeah, yeah. And they said, you want to come? It's on a bus. We're going to take a bus to Heathrow. So we took the London bus to Heathrow to pick them up. (laughs) Because these are the days you you had to do stuff like that. (laughs) And it broke down just around about Chiswick House. And there's a wonderful photograph of me and Derek Taylor sitting on a bus with the doors looking fed up. (laughs) That was was my first week at work. That's fantastic. (laughs) So when people go about on the doors of doors, I get this picture out and go, yeah, that's me in the doors. When you started at Warner's, what did the label mean to you? What did Warner Reprise mean to you as a fan? Well, a lot of the records I'd played, you know, that I'd listened to, I'd asked for, were Warner Reprise. I mean, I remember having, going right back to Warner Brothers of Kathy's Clown by the Everly Brothers, and I remember the, the red label with the arrows on it. But all through, like, Van Morrison... Joni Mitchell. So it, it was a it was a label, mostly well only for American acts, and I was heavily into American acts. So it was a label that I knew pretty well, and I was amazed when I took out you know when I took over the record label, is that they lost money from inception until I took over, <laughs> <laughs> and they they'd had the Eagles' greatest hits, and Fleetwood Mac rumors. And still, still they managed to lose money. Seriously? Yeah. Wow. That is very hard. And they never, me. ever... Gosh. They never made money. And that was, you know, the business thing. In six months, we turned a profit. Mm. And, in, you know, when I left, we were, I think, per the size of our releases to our profits. It's not... They weren't the highest profits because companies were much bigger, but we were, the, we were the best percentage profit to turnover. But that's just something... I always... I always uh, David Geffen said to me once... He said, you know, I'm in the David Geffen business. The trouble with you <laughs> is you're in the Warner business. And because I used to run it as if I owned it. So when I could, you know, by the time I was chairman, I could have a suite in a hotel and travel first class. I still travel first class. But I had a room because I just slept in it. I didn't do business or anything else. 
And I remember one of my staff who was travelling with me who had a suite. And I said, why do you need a suite? He said, well, because I can. And I just went, oh, I can't do that. And I, so I did actually run it as if I... So I paid attention to lots of things. Waiting times on cabs. <laughs> you know, yeah. I suddenly went, no, we're not paying waiting yeah, yeah. time on cabs. Yeah, yeah. Keeping um, on the bottom line, basically. Yeah, well, yes. Yeah, and it was because... You know, it hurt if we lost any money or anything. Yeah. Sure. And that was a very incredibly indulgent time of the music business as well. Waiting time on cabs sounds kind of mean, but basically people in press and A&R yeah. and marketing were ordering a cab for like 12.30 and getting in it at one thirty, Right. To go to a lunch, which then was an expense. Yeah. Mm. And it was just trying to think, you can have the cab, but you can't have an hour. Well, nine times out of ten, they could probably just walk around the corner to have lunch. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> and I can speak for Mark and Martin when I say that those labels, Warner and Reprise, were, were really important to us. Yes. Mm. So many of the artists that, that we worshipped. So, you know, we're, we're doing a kind of Warner Reprise special to coincide with you being on right, the podcast. Okay. And, you know, I mean, when you think about Matt Morrison, Joe, you think about Little Feet. Well, for me, it's, it's Live Dead. Live Dead, well, of course, for you, Grateful Dead. I mean, yeah, I bought that yeah. when it came, just after it came out. Yeah. And that was probably the first record I owned which had the Warner Brothers logo on the, on the label. I just loved that record. Yes. And, and it was Gosh. mysterious. It was American. It was yeah. so far away and kind yes. of strange. It was so know. bloody awful. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, it's the second time. Gary Kent gives me a hard time. <laughs> I, that's, very I, that's your lot, mate, as a deadhead, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I, with, with the exception of maybe Uncle John's band. Mm. And we don't have time allegory. for a debate yeah, about Relative I'll tell you a, a quick story, though, <laughs> is that there was this really attractive girl and I asked her out and I had Grateful Dead tickets because I was at Warner's. And she was a huge grateful. So we had these great tickets, and I, I was I was caught, and I was really keen. I was really keen on this girl, and we got there. And three hours, no, two and a half hours into the gig, I I I I can't, I can't stand this anymore. I can't take any more of this. It's so dreary. And she said, "It's brilliant. It's brilliant." So I said, "Well, I'm going to go." And she said, "Well, I'm going to stay," and that was it. <laughs> wow, that. Yeah. Uh, Mark, have any of your relationships collapsed? No, 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 I never pushed them that far. No. <laughs> <laughs> it, they played for five hours that night, and I just thought, God, I, two hours of my life I got back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Martin, I mean, what, when you think about War Reprise, are there other specific albums or moments or I, gigs? Yes, there were. Well, certainly the, after the Gold Rush, that, that entire kind of era of, mm. of music, Partly because it it felt, I don't know. I think American music at that point was was incredibly seductive. Yeah. To, I mean, yeah. you know, I I'd, I'd grown up with jazz musicians and skiffle and all of those things, and the Warners had, seemed to have some connection to black music, and they had a connection to a kind of intelligent end of uh, certainly you know sixty nine to seventy four or kind of little feet. That whole thing. It was all. It was. A, it was one of those times where if it was a warns, you could trust it. You could. You could buy it and not be worried. I mean, you didn't like everything, but, no, but there yeah. was enough. You know, that was always a good guide. Yes, I had that with Electra Records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I bought Electra Records because I had Paul Seaborg, you know, The Doors, Rhinoceros, yeah. 
And I remember the first time I met Jack Holtzman, I said, I used to buy Electra Records just because it was on Electra, until one record. And then I went, that's it. It's over. <laughs> I'm never going to buy Electra Records that? without hearing it. And, and as Jack said, well, what was that? I said, the Whackers. <laughs> you know the Whackers? No, no, the We've got a couple of pieces on the whack. <laughs> yeah, I mean, can you describe what they sound like? Were they like a power? Were they sort of power? No, they, they were, were meant they? to be, hence the name. They were meant to be Beatlesque, but, yeah, but they were actually monkey-esque <laughs> oh, okay. without, without the songs. <laughs> so if you imagine without a terrible songwriter room. writing songs with the monkeys, you've kind of got the whackers. And I was so personally offended <laughs> that I'd paid this money. I'd bought it from Imhoff's in Tottenham yes. Road, yeah. Which was the first act you personally signed as an A&R man? My first signing in publishing was Johnny Bristol. Oh, right, yeah. Hang on in there, baby. Hang on in there, baby, yes. yeah. Hang on in there, baby, went to number two. Mm-hmm. And again, Warner Brothers Music was the number 11 publisher. Mm-hmm. And within two years, we were number one. Wow. But that was the first one I signed. But the, the great thing about Johnny Bristol is he had a lawyer called Lee Phillips. And Lee Phillips was Joni Mitchell, Neil Young. And when I took over the publishing company, it was it was a week before my 24th birthday. Mm-hmm. So I was 24, and all the American lawyers took away all their acts because they went, there's a kid running a company, we're going to go to a proper right. publishing company, except for Lee Phillips. So he kept Joni and Neil with me, and he said, you know, I've got this new artist, Johnny Bristol. So signed Johnny Bristol... And that was a hit. And I was in America, and he said, I've got this new kid, and we're going to sign to Warner Brothers Records. You know, do you want to hear some demos? Mm. And it was Prince. So when he was 17, wow. he played me Prince demos. <laughs> Fantastic. That became his first album. Yeah, yeah. And, and I went, I love this. Yeah. So I signed Prince, like, on the spot, as Warners were still negotiating. So we had Prince at the same time. Yes. as a record company. Wow. Then I watched the record company fail to break him. Right. Right. Which is when we do, you know, when we when I took over and it was Purple Rain and we broke When Doves Cry and the next, the follow-up was Let's Go Crazy and I went, no, no, not in England. Mm-hmm. 1999. Yes. Backed with Little Red Corvette and they went, what are you talking about? I said, I want to prove a point. They were always hit records. Yeah. And I've got to know that I can make them hit records. Right. And so that was a double A side. I think it went to number two. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. 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 And that, but it only existed in the UK. Is it because I, I mean I did the same the same thing with Madonna. We put out uh, Get Into the Groove, which is the only place it came out as an A side was in the UK. Yeah. Because the I think it was Angel was the record they told us to play. So it's actually a hit. Hit. She was a hit here before she was a hit in America. Is that right? Well, they sent her. Th- they said, you know, England's got no music, just image, and we've got an artist that is just image, mm-hmm. and she's a disco singer. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to send her send her to England because we don't know what to do with her. And I remember a very high ranking executive at Warner Brothers America said, "I just wish we had Cindy Lauper." Mm-hmm. You know, and he said, yeah, but you see what you can do with Madonna. So she kind of lived in the press office in the UK. Yeah, yeah. I have a good Madonna story. 
at the beginning. <laughs> we took her out for dinner, and this is... She'd had a single just before I got there called Everybody, which stiffed. Mm-hmm. And she was signed on a 12-inch deal by Seymour Stein for Sire. And then they changed that into an album deal a bit later on. And so we took her out to dinner, and a couple of things happened. Uh, that day, she had a press thing from The Face, The Daily Express, all this stuff she had to do, and she didn't show up for it. Mm-hmm. And apparently, what verb can I use? She was partying with Rankin Roger of the Beat, who she'd met the night before. Right. <laughs> until, you know, right the way through the press day. And uh, <laughs> and then we took her to dinner that night, and I said, look, Madonna, you've got to... And it was weird saying the word Madonna mm. back then. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> when you're talking to someone, yes. instead of like, you know, hey, Barney, it was like, hey, Madonna. <laughs> <laughs> it was strange. <laughs> Train saying those words. Yeah. yeah. But I said to you, you know, that's really, we, we're going out on a limb here. These people, are, and she said, you know what? Every unknown does an interview with these people. And I didn't. And now remember, I didn't when I'm the biggest actor in the world. And I'm looking at this girl that had one yeah, yeah. record out that stiff. <laughs> and she's saying, when I'm the biggest actor, and I'm rolling my eyes thinking, oh my God, what have <laughs> And I look back at it when she was the biggest actor in the world. And I think, did she know? <laughs> I mean, I felt that she knew. It was very weird that she always what, knew. What year was this? Um, 83. 83, yeah. I remember being in a demo studio around 82, 83, and this guy, one of one of John Rocker from Freeze, from Freeze he, was, he was in the studio, he said, have you heard of this woman called Madonna? She can do everything. She can dance, she can sing, she can do the lot. And, I, can pass I, and I've never heard of her. That's the very first time mm. I heard her name mm. mentioned. Mm. And it was really interesting. This this guy was, you know... Just so I, I, I actually interviewed her at, at Warner's when... It may have been the second time she came over. Yeah. And I, I did find her self-belief terrifying, yeah. <laughs> actually. It was. Yeah. Well, I have a theory about... Every artist changes from, you know, before success... They can be the nicest person in the world, but success will change them. Yeah, yeah. One way or another, usually mm-hmm. not for the best, but they become different people. Yeah, and I've sure. seen it so many times. And I always say, there's one person that didn't change, mm. was Madonna. Yeah. And he went, oh, really? Oh, she stayed. I said, she was always a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> so when she was the biggest actor in the world, she was still a nightmare. Yes. So she's the only one that had a level... You know, everyone uh, else yeah, yeah, has yeah. a graph getting <laughs> more and more difficult. <laughs> she was difficult from the get-go. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Extraordinary. You were in the music business for a long time. You saw all the various changes. I mean, how do you feel... I mean, so, so going from through the end of the 70s, the 80s and the 90s, how did you sort of feel the music business changed? And did it change for the better or for the worse? Or um, That's a bit metaphysical, really. Sorry. <laughs> I, 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 I do apologise. And it changed. Yes. Um, it also depends on what point of view. Mm-hmm. 
you know, at the moment, the record industry makes more money than it's ever made in its life. Extraordinarily, before. after a period when it was really... Yeah, yeah when struck, everyone yeah. thought it was over. Yeah. yeah. And those people, that, you know, like Lem Levatnik, who made decisions to get involved in it, you know, have payday. So the record industry, you know, went from making a little bit of money mm-hmm. to making a lot of money mm-hmm. to making even more with mm. CDs. Right. And then completely missed the boat with downloads we've got um, this marvellous interview with Sky Solomon who ran Tower Records from 1994 Russ, Russ. Yeah, Russ Russ. and he's saying downloads will never catch on no one will want to listen to music on their computers and it's just marvellous reading this now it's just, yeah. and then Tower went bust in 2004 you know so it was it's, it's I, I was on the, you know, chairman of BPI, so I was on the IFPI. Right. And I remember there was, there was like a, a Sean Fanning meeting about, the, you know, the devil, this guy. And they were going to sue him here mm, and sue him yeah. there. And I went, I, t- I think you're all mad. I think we should be hiring him. Mm. He saw a business we didn't. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the point. But they were always, they didn't believe in CDs. No. It's like... It's, it's a you know, they really believed in cassettes, which is probably the worst, <laughs> the worst thing that ever happened to the music business. And they all believed in cassettes because they were cheap. Until make. people started taping their stuff on cassettes, and oh, yeah, then it became phone yeah. taping yeah. is killing music. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was chairman of BPI during that thing, and, so, <laughs> and but it was so. It's so financially, it's had its up. It's, it, you know, it got more and more profitable and then yeah. it had a dip and then it came back more profitable than ever for the big labels mm. because basically they're turning over a billion songs you know one label universal i think has a billion songs are selling every single day now minuscule yes. amounts yeah. of money yeah, but. but selling every hour of every day in every country it wasn't let's wait for the record store to open yeah yeah and it's like so every minute there's someone downloading streaming something so the profits with no A and R, no marketing, no upfront, astronomical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and a load of your catalogue with no upfront cost to it. So you can look at it that way, and then you look at it the artist way. Yeah, and you see, I mean, you know, when I was buying records or obtaining records, um, <laughs> it was, you know, there was one TV in the house mm. and a, a done set record player in mm. your bedroom. And, you know, you either watch TV that your parents decided on or you went to your room and played a record. You went to your friend's house and played records. There was no other. So music became everything. Yeah. And then bit by bit, it's become a strand. Yes. Of, um, you know, a completely multidimensional empire of of, of what you can do with your time. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, also music's how you judge people. I used to go to girls' flats and things when I was sort of dating. (laughs) And I'd go straight to the record, record collection, collection and yeah. go. Mm. Not dating her. Julia, what was her name? <laughs> there, was, there was an artist on Virgin called Julia. Uh, oh, I know who you mean. Yes, and Julia like, Fordham. Julia Fordham. And if I saw a Julia Fordham, you were out there. I was out there. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh. If I saw an Otis Redding record, if I saw Otis I, Blue there, I think this is a You mentioned Rod Stewart earlier, Rob, and I just wanted to ask you about the story of Downtown Train. Right. <laughs> yes. Well, it's, uh, when, I, when I took over Warner's, the day I took over, the second day of my reign at Warner's as the chair, 
Baby Jane went to number one. Mm-hmm. Had nothing to do with me, but it was kind of like a sign. They hadn't had a number one in years. And then suddenly there's this number one. And so Rod Stewart was back on it, selling lots of records. And then we had year, you know, year two, year three, year four. And he just made all those, you know, forgettable AOR yeah, yeah. records that sold in America, in Europe, not yeah. just the UK. The people didn't really buy his records anymore. We, I had a meeting with him and his manager saying, you know, what's going on in the UK? Why isn't lots... So, you know, I, I'm slightly Asperger's when it comes to... I can lie about anything, mm-hmm. but I can't lie about music. So if someone's <laughs> asked me a musical question... Yeah, yeah. You know, whether it's, you know, what do you think of the record or whatever? And I said, well, basically, Rod is a good singer of mediocre songs. Yes. And a great singer of great songs. Yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, the last couple of albums have been mediocre songs. And first of all, the manager couldn't believe I just said that. <laughs> and he, and he, he, with Rod in the room. Mm-hmm. And then Rod said, so you can find me a great song? And I said, in a second. And he said, okay, my house in Epping, Saturday, you know, Saturday lunchtime, you come over at Epping from London, is that schlock? Um, <laughs> So I tried. So I, 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 I just had an argument with everything that was going because I, I love Tom Waits. I've got some Tom Waits stories as well. Um, I love Tom Waits. And they used to do Downtown Train in the act, right? And they demoed it, and I said, "Oh, this is a single." And they went, "You don't tell us what singles we can do." I said, "No, but you know, it's not like I came up the idea. You came up the idea." And they said, "Well, we're not doing it." So I don't. So when I was trying to think of a great song, I thought, Tan Tan Train, that's a great song. It was right in my front of my brain. And also, I, I, I knew Rod a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, I sort of met him a few times with the faces and stuff. And I knew he had the concentration of a, you know, <laughs> of a rock star. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so, so I made a cassette and I put Tan Tan Train on it three times. <laughs> and I, I, I went over to the house and then his son came down with a boom box mm-hmm. and I slotted in the cassette and I played downtown train and I said don't say anything and I played it and then it came on again and then I, I said don't say anything <laughs> and the third time it played he went I love it I absolutely love it and his son who was a teenager at the time said Dad, why does he sing so bad? And I went, that's my point. You know, most people can't stand Tom Waits' singing voice. I mean, I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I got why he's not, you know, a huge seller. And I said, so that song, with you singing it, suddenly... So he says, "Okay, I'll do it. So I rein in Trevor Horn, Mm -hmm. and Trevor goes and does a sort of a backing track with Rod doing it. And I'm thinking, oh, this is good. This is this could be something. And then I, I'm somewhere out of London. I get a phone call from Lenny Wanaka, who has, I've never seen him say a harsh word to anyone. Mm-hmm. He is, you know, that avuncular, <laughs> easygoing. He calls me up. He's so angry. And he goes, I hear you're making a record with Rod Stewart. And I said, well, yeah. I said, he said, what do you mean, well, yeah? He said, it's not your artist. You are the distribution of Warner Brothers Records. 
and how dare you take an A and R decision on one of our artists without talking to us? Wow. So I kind of thought, well, you're right because I'd be the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, and he said, so what are you going to do? I said, if you don't want it and it's finished, we'll take the cost. We'll eat the cost. Sure. So he kind of reluctantly agreed. And I put the phone down, the phone rings, and it's Trevor Horn. He said, I've been thinking about this track. It needs an orchestra. (laughs) (laughs) Just after you said you absorbed the cost. Yeah, it needs an orchestra. And I thought, oh, God. And I said, do you mean strings? He said, no, it needs an orchestra. So I I, I just went in for a penny, in for a pound, so I said, okay. (laughs) So he puts an orchestra on it, and they still haven't done final vocals. Rod's gone back to L.A. Trevor flies out to do the vocal. He rings me up and he said, when Rod's warmed up his voice, the whole track is in the wrong key. So he's now a semitone different from this. So I'm thinking, oh, God, this is, you know, (laughs) this is a terrible situation. So then I said, what can you do? And he said, I'm talking to all kinds of technicians here. So then he called back and he said, like, we can move it up a semitone without ruining the strings. So they did. Yeah, yeah. And then Rod did it in his proper key. And everybody loved it. And it kind of put Rod back. He was on the cover of Rolling Stone after it, which he hadn't been on for years. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Suddenly he was cool. Yeah, yeah. And... That the Tom me, Waits effect. And that leads me to a Tom Waits story, but I'm not sure we've got I do have to ask you about the whole debacle around Robert Mugardo and Doug Morris. Tell us the story of how you 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 came within a whisker of becoming no, no, the no, head of. Warner. I, I was there. You were for, for twenty four hours. <laughs> for twenty four hours. The global head of Warner Brothers. <laughs> I was. Yeah, and the job. It was. It was a job I always wanted. I mean, I love Warner Brothers. I love. I love what they what they meant which was an artist's haven and very Mm A&R-led, whereas, you know, CBS Sony was business affairs-led, you know, quite cold decisions. It was much warmer at Warner Brothers. Mm. And then Mo Austin was this this great figure that ran it, and he and Bob Magado, who was overseeing the music division, fell out. I think Warner's weren't doing quite as well as he wanted. Mo, I think, was too powerful. And... So they fell out, and Mo was gone, and they had to replace him, and they, and they offered me the job, and which I, I said yes to, and flew out to L.A. and met a few people. David Geffen had a house in the Bird Streets in, in, in West Hollywood, and he said, you know, if you need a house, there's a house here straight away so you can you know, get started. So it was all kind of looking good. And they and then Bob McGuire said, "I've just got to, you know, sort out a few bits of local politics." So I said, "Fine, let me know when you need me." And he said, "Because I want you to do a series of press conferences in New York." Mm-hmm. So I said, "Fine, you know, whenever you need me." And I was at the ASCAP Awards, I think, in London, 
And I got back at one o'clock. There was I got a phone call from Bob McGarlow and said, "We need you here tomorrow morning." <laughs> it's one o'clock in the morning, and he said, "Because we're going to announce it." So we're doing the press thing. We're going to announce it. So I didn't really go to bed. I had to find a hotel room, mm-hmm. which Rod Stewart's manager, you know, because I couldn't get a hotel room in New York. And he said, I've got a suite at the Carlisle. I'm not going to use you have that. So I had a hotel. Then I had to get the Concorde. Mm-hmm. So I got the first Concorde out. You know, and I'm flying out. And, and I said, oh, my goodness, talk to my now wife. And I said, what is going on? She said, it's your destiny. And so I got in this plane thing, and it's the job, the one job I've always mm-hmm. wanted, to run Warner Brothers Records properly from America. So I get to the hotel, and I get a phone call from Magado's assistant saying, Bob's got to deal with a few things. Can you just wait in the hotel room? Mm-hmm. So I'm waiting in the hotel room, and then I don't hear. So we go in from like 9 o'clock New York time, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, David Geffen rings me and said, what's going on? I said, I'm, you know, I'm waiting in this room. For, I don't know what's going on. He said, I hear you're out. <laughs> you know, I'm preparing for a press conference. So this is going to really, you know, trust Geffen to know before anyone else. <laughs> He's not even, I think even there, it's like five o'clock in the morning or something. Yeah. Anyway, he just started DreamWorks. Yes. And he said, look, whatever happens... There's a job for you at DreamWorks. And he said, you know, they hadn't opened yet. Right. And he said, you know, so don't get upset. You've got a job here. And they were all over the news when it was launched. So I kind of thought, well, that's nice. But I don't know what's going on. So after about about one o'clock, I called Magala's office. And he said, "Um, I'm in a bit of a difficult situation. Doug Morris says it's him or you. You know, and Doug Morris at that time was was going to be head of the music division. And he said, Doug says it's him or you. And we can't... And I said, well, you can't give in to that. You're immediately, you know, weakened your whole position. And he said, I know I've got, you know, I've got an interest in this, but as an advisor to you, <laughs> when someone says it's him or, you know, it's him or me, against your decision, you can't let them win. And he said, well, you know, and I've, I've, I've got to, and, you know, I'm really sorry. Wow. And oh, so I'm just left Jesus. at the Carlisle <laughs> with a job that I thought I'd had. And, you know, they, they made arrangements for what happened in the UK. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, all this had yeah, gone yeah, on yeah, in 24 yeah. hours. It's astonishing story. And, uh, yeah. And I've got to say, I think I'd have had a nervous breakdown. Other than the fact that David Geffen said... You know that because that was the coolest label that was going to be. In, mm-hmm. You know, after Asylum and everything else, and Geffen Records. Mm-hmm. I think if I'd been left that, and then I came back, and they said, you know, Rob, of course you've got your own your own job. And so I I rang David and thanked him and said, look, and he said, well, why wouldn't you leave? And I said, my staff and my artists. Mm. You know, by that time I'd heard Enya and, you know, lots of mm-hmm. different Simply Red. We had lots of things that we were doing well with. And I said, you know, I can't leave them. No. And that kind of made my relationship with David not quite as good as it, as right. it used to be. It's, but, yeah, that's well, that situation. I remember the, that great big Vanity Fair story about yeah. this whole drama. And, I, had and a gay, I had a gay friend because I remember I had Brad Pitt on the cover. 
And then there was the Brad Pitt sort of photo splash where he was kind of in, in nothing but a pair of shorts. And a gay friend then said to you know, I've got the Vanity Fair, I've got the Vanity Fair. And I kind of rang him a couple of days later and I said, well, what do you think? And he said, I, I can't get past the Brad Pitt picture. <laughs> <laughs> you hadn't even read the story. <laughs> no, no. You were quite <laughs> That's fantastic. Oh, dear. That is absolutely brilliant. We're going to have to have you back for a kind of part two because we, we, we don't have that much more time. We need, we need to um, Press on move, m- move on yeah. to, to the audio interview. And In I, fact, I, it's quite a good way of ending this part is <laughs> on the disaster of your 24-hour appointment. As, as, <laughs> yes. Yeah, when people say, you never were head of Warner Brothers, I said, yes, I was. <laughs> <laughs> 24 hours. Well, you, your, your Warner's career did officially end in 1998, of course, which was, what, three three or so years later. Yeah. There's obviously more to talk yeah. about after, ended, after that. It ended with one of the biggest record of my career. Yeah, we'll leave that bit out. Tell Which us about. What? Tell us about it. Share believe. Shares oh, believe. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, the extraordinary story of creation of believe. Is yes, unbelievable. Yes. Yeah, of... there's, there's quite a few things we're missing out. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Tell us about Cher. Tell us about that record because it was obviously it was a huge record. It was well, Cher's manager I'd known. He was a friend of my brother's, and he was just the most wonderful person, and. So he rings me and said, I can't get arrested. And we've been dropped by Geffen. I can't get arrested in the States. And if anyone can make a hit record with it, it's you. And, you know, flattery will get you everywhere. So, <laughs> so we talked a deal and I signed Cher to the UK company. And I thought, you know, I can, I can make hits with Cher, which, which I did. You know, I got Trevor Horn in because we'd just done the Rod Stewart stuff. And I, so I got Trevor Horn to do the record. And we made a fantastic record. And it, I, I don't know if you know, but on that record is a prefab Sprout song. Oh, I didn't which, know that. Which one? The Gunman. Okay. And I, I, I absolutely... It was, a, it was a demo at the time from Paddy. I, I love Paddy McAloon. As a creative talent, as a human being, he's yeah. one of the best people I've ever met. And I just kind of thought it would be great to share Cat and Paddy McAloon song. <laughs> and so it's the song she hates more than anything, I think. It's the track she hates more. Um, but it's wonderful. <laughs> and we did this, and, you know, I, 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 Walking in Memphis was a great song and hadn't been a hit. Yeah. So I kind of heard her singing that. And then I had another track called One by One. So we made this record. Which is called It's a Man's World, because we did James Brown, because I always thought, how great to have that lyric sung by a woman, you know, by a strong woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was, that was the album. And we had two top ten singles. The album did well, but nothing really mm-hmm. to write home about. And then I had a meeting with Cher and, and, and Billy Samoth, the manager, who we called Bumper. And I said to her, all my gay, gay male friends, of which I have a lot, mm-hmm. love you. They've never mentioned your music once, but they love you. Why don't we make a record for them? Right. So, you know, because... And she said, what do you mean? A dance record? I said, yeah, a high-energy record. And, you know, just something that they can go, I love her and I love this, that mm-hmm. record. And she said, I'm not making a dance record. I tried that in the disco time and it was a disaster. Right. I'm not making a dance record. So... I kind of knew I was right. <laughs> and so I kept on 
and kept on. <laughs> and and then she, you know, we had phone calls and stuff. And she said, if you're going to carry on like this, I'm not talking to you. And she didn't talk to me for three months. And then she said, you know, I said, can we meet? And she was in LA, I was in London, so we decided to meet in New York. Mm-hmm. So I get to New York, and in the hotel, I've got a message from the desk going, from Cher, I'm not coming, I'm not making a dance record. <laughs> so I'm thinking, great. And so I went and met with Junior Vasquez and right. Todd Terry, and I went to Tower Records, and I bought Cher records. And I said, work out her key, yes, and then write me some hits. And so Todd Terry did a great track, right. Junior Vasquez did something. And then she heard I was making the record. <laughs> and at the same time, I bet you're glad you asked for this story. Yeah. At the same time, I used to love hanging out in the A&R department. I had, my office was on its own floor. But every time I wanted to hang out, the phone would ring or my fabulous assistant would say, you've still got to do this, this and this. I never got past her desk. Mm-hmm. And so this day I walked past the desk I went downstairs to the A&R department and Steve Allen, my friend down there, had his door open and there was a songwriter called Brian Higgins sitting there like this, sort of coyly in the corner. Steve was on the phone. And I, you know, I'd always had a rule, you, know, you never take a phone call unless it's from an artist. Mm-hmm. And he was on the phone call just like, and I thought, no, she's terrible. So I said, Brian, how are you? And Brian had written for like Danny Minogue or something. Mm-hmm. And I just felt sorry for him. I'm making a record with Cher. You know, have you got anything? So he said, I've got loads. And I went, <laughs> I don't want loads. Give me two. So he turns up the next day with a dat, which, you know, you can't play in your car. <laughs> I, I had a dat machine <laughs> in my office. <laughs> and uh, is there a voice comes in and say, that is a digital audio tape, which was... Um, <laughs> yeah, and That's the future of recording. And so I, so I had a machine in my in my house, and and I and on it was sixteen tracks. And I went, oh, please! Mm-hmm. You know, I asked for two, I get sixteen. Typical. So I completely forget about it. I take it home, and then one day I come home, and my wife is out, and it was a really hot summer's day. So I went up and laid on the bed, and I thought, well, I can listen to something. Now, the thing about that is, you can't fast forward. And you can't pick tracks like a CD. So I put the dat on, and the first track happened, the second track, they were terrible. And they were a minute long. And I thought, this is so weird, a minute long, but it made it easy. So get to track nine, it's a track called Believe. And it's the chorus of Believe, which we all know. Mm-hmm. I thought, I love this. And then track 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, rubbish. And uh, so I go back and I, I ring him up and I said, I really like this song, Believe, but it's just a chorus. And he said, well, I kind of figure if you don't like the chorus, what's the point of finishing the song? And I went, and this is a person who's sort of grown up with Bob Dylan and yeah, Jamie yeah, Mitchell, yeah. and I'm thinking, please, you know, yeah. where is it? What am I doing? So I said, well, finish the song. He said, yeah, yeah, I'll finish the song. And he finished the song. It was terrible. And I went, Brian, you, you've written this hit chorus and then this terrible verse and middle eight and and he said well you know i'll give it another go i said no no you've had your chance (laughs) you know i'm not that person anymore (laughs) Um, you've had your chance so i i was working with a guy a a writer 
producer manager called Brian Rowling. And we were doing a song that he'd written for the share thing or sent me for share. And I said, Oh, have you got, you know, can you finish this off? You know, your writers finish this off. So then they came back with a terrible verse, terrible middle eight, <laughs> and a great bridge to the chorus, <laughs> which is the famous attention part. Two pieces. I've got two pieces. <laughs> I've still got no verse, and I've got no middle eight. And no buy-in from the artist at this point. <laughs> yeah, the artist doesn't and the want artist to do it. The artist is not really talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's really going well. <laughs> She's not making it. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I know I've got, like, the bones of a hit. So mm. I, I say to Brian, you know, what is right? I'm giving you a hit chorus. Why can't you write a verse? And, he's, and I said, no, you've had your chance. He said, well, I've got other writers. I said, okay. That's it. You can get you can get some other writers on it, and then they wrote the verse. And I said, "Great, I really love the verse." The middle eight still sucks. <laughs> and he said, oh, "Rob, please give us a break. I mean, it's a great song." And I said, "There is, you know, it's just." And so I said, "Okay, okay." And I sent it to Cher. I said, you know you didn't think there were any songs in dance, but you will listen to this. And I've got to say, why I love Cher, and I do love Cher, is a lot of people, to make a point, someone who's like an icon like Cher, would have said, I hate it. Mm -hmm. yeah, even if they didn't. Yeah. Even if they didn't. She came back and said, I absolutely love it. She said, what do you want me to do? And I said, sing the fucking vocal. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so she flew over, and, uh, and, she, and she did it. And in the morning she got up, she got up to do the vocal. Oh no, after she'd done the vocal. And Roachford was on this morning, or what, morning yeah. TV. And he had a vocoder on his voice. And she went, so she, I love this. So he went to the studio and she went, I want it to sound like Roachford. And they said, well, that's a vocoder. And we don't have one. <laughs> he said, but I can give you an approximation. And he turns up the auto-tune to, to 10. Yes. To show what an auto-tune can do. Yeah, yeah. And she went, I love it, I love it. And he went, no, no, I'm only oh. just <laughs> showing you what he... He said, no, I love it. So I get a phone call saying that she's got this thing on her voice. And so I came down and I said, Cher, you know, your signature is your voice. Can we just dial it back again? And she said, anyone touches that over my dead body. And so <laughs> um, someone was writing a book about number one records and they said so I'm writing this thing about how you put the auto tune on and I said I gotta say I created the song like Frankenstein but I did not do the auto tune that was completely Cher so it was an, you know I, I rang Cher when it was number one and you know I was the little boy watching Ready Steady Go <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> absolutely 15 year old watching Ready Steady Go and thinking I Got You Babe was the best record I've yeah, ever heard yeah and I'm this little boy waiting for him to pick up the phone She's thrilled. Then I called Brian to tell him we're number one. And he went, that's fantastic. And scream, whooping, whooping. And I said, and the middle eight still sucks. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great, that's it's fantastic. a fantastic that's story. Fantastic. It's, a, it's a shaggy dog story. It, 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 all the things that could have rung, the mm. phone could have rung, mm. you know, which it always did. 
Oh, my assistant said, you've still got reply to so-and-so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and I wouldn't have gone downstairs. Yeah. If Steve hadn't picked up the phone, he'd been the door-closed meeting, I wouldn't have seen Brian Higgins. Yeah. If my wife hadn't gone out that evening, I wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't have listened, have listened to, to that. Yeah. And the yeah. whole trajectory of popular music would be different. <laughs> yes. I, I saw Cher the other day, and she said, Kanye West came up to me, and he said, he said how does it feel creating a whole yeah. you know, yeah. genre of music? Because hip-hop embraced auto-tune yes oh, uh, yes, yes. To, to, yeah, to, to a ridiculous to, degree. To, to, to a good uh, to a very bad extent <laughs> oh, no, a very bad extent <laughs> yes but and also it's so, so did like pop singers yeah, yeah. you know in the yeah. true sense yes. of just being able to put it in tune yeah but, but men's every vocal sound the same. I, I love the fact that she was alert enough to what was happening with the sound of her voice with this machinery to mm. kind of instantly say this is really interesting I mean that, that's, that's an artist that's a creative you know, decision of hers. She's the greatest. Mm. I mean, I'm, she's funny. I'm so glad you say that because I've always adored her from a long <laughs> way away. And are you gay? No. Should I be? Yeah, we are. <laughs> on the share scale you, now, you, you officially are now. Okay, yes, all right. Exactly. I, 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 I can take that. I, I, <laughs> I, I get my friends now. My gay friends. If I go somewhere and there's lots of gay people, they go, this is Rob. He made believe. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, I'm suddenly like this superpower. I remember reading it, uh, Robbie Fawkes, uh, who's an alt-country singer, was in uh, travelling endlessly in a van with his band. And that came on, and he and everyone was going, oh, turn that off, turn that off. And he said, no, this is a great, great song. And they all said, really? So he put it in the set that night, and then they kept doing it. And everyone came to realise that was a kind of country esque, except for the middle eight. Except I dropped that. I dropped that. If you listen to that record again, you'll see what I mean. When we finished this, that was yeah, it basically just repeats a line, and you know, it's dreadful. But it's surrounded by brilliance, so yeah, we get right. away with it. So how many writers were credited in the Six. end? Six. Wow. Two plus two plus two. Yeah. And All on different the, percentages? It, it, it won the... Uh, no, there was an argument about percentages. <laughs> but I said Brian Higgins has got to get 50%. Right. Because of the because chorus. And, be, and the chorus, and the, he started the yeah, whole yeah, genesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was that thing. And yeah. There was a bit of argument from the others, but, you know, in the end... The, they all made millions. Yes. <laughs> yes. Except me. <laughs> you, you, well, right, in right, Dick right, Clark or Alan Freed sense, <laughs> yeah. your name should be on the track. Yeah, should really. Well, Pete Waterman. Because Pete, you know, Stock and Aiken wrote the song. Yeah, and he always put his name on it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but I, I get it, because... He directed he the, them. He, yeah, yeah. He, it he, wouldn't have happened without him. He, he, orchest the, he orchestrated yeah. their work, mm. and that's that's kind of what I did. But yeah. you know, I, I wasn't a producer. I was the head of a record company, and it was not you know, it's, I certainly not what I wanted to do. No, no. But I kind of felt when they won, so they all went. And I got asked up as well. But when I was going, this is so and so. Meet Brian Higgins, and so you know, it's like they never <laughs> met. That's so. And I, I think it's the only song I've Frankenstein in my career. Yeah, it's great. That's fantastic. 
Thanks for talking to us about your amazing career, Rob. It's really, really been fascinating. And I know we could talk for another two, three hours, but we do have to move on. We've got to move on. The week's new audio interview. What is it, Mark? Yeah, it's Leon Russell being interviewed by Andy Gill in 1998. It's terrific. It's, it's about an hour long, but he goes right back to backing Jerry Lewis in Oklahoma moving to Los Angeles, becoming one of what he, in fact, says they were never called at the time, and he rightly so, the Wrecking Crew, the piano player with the Wrecking Crew, playing lots of Phil Spector sessions, playing on Birds, Mr Tambourine Man, which, of course, the birds themselves didn't play on, except for Roger McGuinn, I think. Which ties in with what you were saying earlier, Rob, about the birds on stage. I've been for a while in the Shindig House Band, Jack Good, which I, who I will talk about a little bit later as well. Delaney and Bonnie, Denny Cordell coming out, meeting Joe Cocker, starting the idea of Shelter Records. And this is in the first clip, which is about putting together Mad Dogs and Englishmen for Joe Cocker. Well, uh, it worked out that Joe had fired the Grease Band, and he had 50 shows booked in the United States, and he was going to cancel them. But he had fired his band for some reason, and the Musicians' Union told him that if he didn't play those shows, they weren't going to let him work in the United States again. So he was kind of up against a wall a very short amount of time, four or five days before the first show. So he asked me, uh, actually Denny asked me to, could I put something together so he could make those, those dates? So I, just trying to think of something that could be done rapidly, I just sat there and started dictating what what it should be, what the band should be. We should get a film crew, get news crews, and uh, get a plane. And so all of, somebody was writing it all down. A couple of days later, all that stuff was, was there. And so uh, it was interesting worked well. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Once while across the sky This lovely planet's called mine <laughs> so, <laughs> so you've got to put a band together in five days and you just complicate it enormously I, I, by adding a film, film crew. I don't, it is extraordinary. Have you seen the film? Have yeah, yeah, film? yeah, it's a recent uh, I mean, I love that album. I mean, it's just absolutely one of my favourites. And, um... But, but it's very, you know, you can see Joe Cocker's in a really unhappy situation and him descending into what became basically five years of alcoholic gloom and yeah, sort of dragged yeah. himself out of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, then he talks more about Shelter Records, about his old Tulsa buddy J.J. Kale, what he calls the troubled soul of Willis Allen Ramsey. Recording Freddie King the second time I saw Leon Russell. Freddie King was the support band at Rainbow in, yeah. I guess, 72, 73. Then his first two solo albums, the first one with a very starry cast, recorded at Olympic here. Glyn Johns brought in George Harrison, Ringo yeah, Starr. Basically the Beatles so, and the Stones. The Beatles <laughs> yes, and the Stones, yeah. basically. And he talks about, also about, about writing songs and about a song for you and the masquerade becoming standards. This is his next clip. This is about a song for you and Ray Charles. certain period of time I attempted to write standards uh, I was fascinated there was a guy that played with uh, Tower of Power played the baritone sax Doc he said to me he said I don't know how you do it he said I, I've had 12 number one records and nobody ever cuts my songs 
said, you have all these records out and hundreds of people cut your songs. How do you do that? So, and I, I, I mean, I never really thought of it to that extent, but in the case of Song For You, I was trying to write a song that Ray Charles and Frank Sinatra both could sing, a blues song that had qualities that, uh, you know, that a standard lounge singer could sing. And in fact, uh, my publishing guy took that to Ray Charles before my record came out, and his response was that he didn't like to do songs by people that sounded like him because he didn't want to be accused of stealing. <laughs> so uh, I was really pleased that uh, he cut it. It was about 23 years later he cut it on that album and had, had a hit with it. I've been so many places in my life and time I've sung a lot of songs I've made some bad rhymes That uh, reminds me of Randy Newman's Lonely at the Top yeah. which he wrote for Frank Sinatra <laughs> <Frank's not>. Yes <laughs> yeah. And it's still going Frank Sinatra really had a sense of humour yes. <laughs> That would have been one hell of a record Yeah, yeah wouldn't it? it? It really would. Uh, so I should mention that the, the reason we, we've added oh. this is because there's a, a new biography of Leon, probably the first biography of right. Leon Russell, coming out next week by Bill Yanovitz, who was the, the lead singer of Buffalo Tom, and it's called The Master of Space and Time's <laughs> Journey Through Rock and Roll History. And you've read some of it, haven't you? I've, read, I've, not had I've, I've got about a third of the way through. But really interesting, yeah? actually. Yeah. Yeah, he's I mean, a fascinating very, well, story, to be it? a teenager and playing in Jerry Lee Lewis's yeah. band for one thing at fourteen. Uh, but so also how he was a huge stage act in America in, in the early seventies, playing big, big audiences, and then his career just cratered more or less overnight. Mm. Then he did some interesting stuff. He talks about it doing that really wonderful album with Willie Nelson. Yeah. Where he's playing on a, a Yamaha CP70 electric grand, which is the most distinctive piano noise on earth. Everyone hates it. And he makes it sound and it, it works beautifully. Um, and he talks. He also, he also talks about the concept of Bangladesh that he was very involved in putting yes, together. Absolutely. You know, with, with the children. Did Leon mean anything to you, Rob? I loved him. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I just loved this, uh, those. I mean, tightrope. I mean, just yeah. song after song. Yeah, yeah. Me and Baby Jane. Delta and, Lady. I mean, which was a hit for Joe Cocker. Yeah, yeah I, I prefer the ballads. You I did. Well, Man, Manhattan Island Serenade. Yeah. It's sensational yeah. I think interesting That's singing voice I mean job. actually Something close to Dr John than anyone else I love Dr of, John well so yeah. as do we I think we he was clearly yeah, influenced Dr. by Dr um, John I, yeah, I, 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 guess he, I guess he probably didn't have naturally a good singing voice so he had compared to, to Mike Rabanak the voice was yeah. not but also he particularly had, he, he strong had, voice he had to strangle it in order to give himself a sound mm. that probably if he sung in his natural voice it probably wouldn't sound that interesting mm. anyway I, I was a big big fan loved what he did with, with, with Mad Dogs and Englishmen Love his first two solo albums. Like, like, actually, his first three. Khan is a really good record. Khan, I love. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, the story of Mad, the Mad Dogs tour is it's it's just hair raising. I mean, I, the, the one bit of the book I have read because it was excerpted in Mojo yeah. is, yes. is Bill Janowitz's yeah. account yeah. of the Mad Dogs yeah. tour, and it is just like my, 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 breathtaking my, how how they got it I together. Know, I know. Mike John, one of our writers, who wrote for the New York Times. He told me that that. Mad Dogs at the Film East was the best show he's ever seen in his life. And this is a guy who's seen kind of 
everyone, you yeah. know. Yeah, is that um, where they recorded the. Yeah, that, that's where the album was recorded, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's clearly chaotic, but in the spirit of those times, it somehow worked, didn't it? Like, like yeah. a lot of sort of things that happened at yeah. festivals, live events, where it's you a, just think this is insane. Uh, Everyone's drug crazy, uh, sleeping essentially, with each other. But it worked. Still made it. Yes. The band I saw. Yeah. The band I saw at the Albert Hall was essentially a chunk of the the Mad Dogs band. You know, that he kind of kept together. And of course, a huge influence on them. Elton John, which is why very big influence. Who did then sort of come, come back, back to the... Leon's? Well, I'm not going to say rescue, but he's. But I think he Helped he wanted out. to pay tribute yes. to yeah. Leon, didn't he? So after this interview was recorded with, with Andy Gill from 1998, some some years after that, Leon and Elton did an album together, yeah. which I, I don't know very well, no. but I remember seeing the pictures of Leon at that point but, looked like something out of Lord of the Rings. Well, he always did. We just didn't know Lord of the Rings. A nice white he had, he had grey hair when I saw yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, right. Right. The white hair was tremendous, it was, wasn't it? It really yeah. was. Yeah. It was a look. It, 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 probably, was, a it, was, it was extraordinary. Yeah, so, so yes, great. very pleased to listen to that interview and hear all this stuff. It, yeah, it's, 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 there's lots of interesting yeah. stuff. And so far, the book's very good. Is it? Good, good. Excellent, great. So, what have we got time for? We do need to pay tribute to some some fallen Oh, that let's do that first. Yeah, and I mean, how much time, Jasper, realistically, have we got? Minus 20 minutes. Minus 20 minutes. Okay, so let's use those minus 20 minutes. So we did lose Wayne Shorter last week, and I would ask you guys just to say something about this extraordinary saxophonist and the co-founder of Weather Report. Sure, well, I mean, for me, it was those early Electric Miles albums, you know, In a Silent Way, Bitches Brew, which I just think of just fantastic records. And then he joins Weather Report, and it's, it's uh, you know, I was anti-jazz rock at that time because I'd been put off by the Mahavishnu Orchestra, who I briefly loved and then decided I absolutely despised them. And and drugs so wore off, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that trip, they've been on. <laughs> Four years later, <laughs> I guess. I guess. Um, he's very interesting. I mean, Richard Williams quoted Wayne sort of telling Richard that he felt himself disappearing in Weather Report. Mm. And he did because... The first two, three albums, he is the one of the most interesting solo voices. And about four or five albums in, it's almost like he's not there. Mm. Mm. Very, very, it's very strange. And and yet he sort of accepted it. I, first of all, one thing, he's earning more money than he ever earned in his life. I mean, for a jazz musician, earning that sort yeah. of money was pretty serious stuff. But also it's kind of odd equanimity that he could just allow this, the massive ego of Joe Zawinul to sort of push him to one side but yeah. marvellous player but a marvellous player and fantastic composer as well I think it's it's really worth saying right. that he, he composed just a number of just eternal jazz standards I yeah. mean ESP mm. Speak No Evil Footprints all of those are yeah, just, yeah. just wonderful pieces of music And to combine that kind of composition with the improvisation that he did, I think he was he was a great. He's not, my, his tone isn't always my favourite, but as a musician all round, I think yeah, he's yeah. huge. I mean, and also managed to cross over, you know, doing the jazz, yeah, yeah. fusion jazz rock stuff, but also playing on like Joni albums and, and doing all this stuff in yeah. in a way that that seemed totally natural and he, easygoing. He has I think a way with a special. sparse melody, which is mm, very yes. rare in jazz players. He can just play like four notes and they hang there and. Yeah. Worked beautifully. Great record with his... Milton Nascimento, Native Dancer, is a lovely, mm. lovely album. Yeah, and his, and his playing on 
the Joni Mitchell records, especially the one she did with Vince Mendoza, the the string arrangements of yes. um, his his playing Gorgeous. is beautiful on that. She absolutely adored him. Yeah. I think it, I mean it's interesting that he he had this very open mind around whether I, mean, I really do love Weather Report even if you know it's clearly Zawinul dominated but I, but when you hear mm. Shorter playing with within that that funky cosmic sort of sound I, I think it's very very beautiful that funky cosmic sound <laughs> copyright by um, and, and, quite, yes. and a thoroughly nice man by all accounts as by well. Accounts. I, mean, really lo- I read yeah. a really nice piece then, on NPR. You? Michelle Mercer, his, his biographer, wrote a lovely tribute to him and mm-hmm. just tells this great story of like she's on a real deadline of getting the book done and he's quite discursive normally in their interviews but he's got she's got like two weeks left and she needs to get some stuff nailed down and then he sort of starts going off on one and his wife goes, Wayne, she's on a deadline, she's got two weeks. And then, and then suddenly he just starts... You know, giving her exactly all the answers that she needs <laughs> in perfect recall, perfect, you know, it's just... It, all sentences. It's just, just very fun and, and, yeah, big loss. Two figures that we've lost more recently in the last few days, Gary Rossington of Leonard Skinner and the great David Lindley. So we've got pieces pertaining to to Skinnerd and a lovely piece about David Lindley in which Stephen Rosen drops by Lindley's house in Claremont and there's all these sort of extraordinary, you know, old, old instruments around. I mean, many listeners will know Lindley from particularly his his association with Jackson Brown over the years. I mean, yeah. you, you, I'm sure well, you I, know I, his work. I knew him from Terry Reid. You knew, right, right. I of mean, he's on the, yes, of course. Before Jackson, he Sorry. was with Terry Reid with Alan White on drums and Lee Miles from Icantina Turner yeah. on bass. Wow. And, uh, yeah, so I heard that sound... I booked Terry Reid when I was at Loughborough, mm. and that was the lineup. I think Alan White, Lee Miles, and David Lindley. And so that sound, that, I mean, even though it was a, a you know a pedal steel, not a pedal steel, so lap steel, lap steel, yes. <laughs> yes, that has been played by millions of people, you know, in particular in country music. But he made it sound like nothing else. Yes, and so that was. I mean, I saw Terry a few weeks ago. Did you? So just before David died, in fact, we were talking about that that mm. lineup. I don't know if you've ever done a Terry Reid in pages, but his life story is extraordinary. Yes. But you know, Lindley was a major part of that. In fact, he left Terry Reid to join Jackson. You're a Lindley fan, I think. Uh, yeah, Martin. no, yeah. I really like his, yeah. His he had a great it. sense of humour as well. You could think of his vocal on Stay. Yes. Yeah, on the yes. Live Jackson album. And his fiddle playing on cocaine it's, is, yeah, is incredible as well. He just added a personality yeah. to all the records he ever played on. Yeah. I mean, Terry Reed's River is, the, you know, is, was when he was, that was the album when he was working with Terry. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, he just right. added another personality. Well, particularly to added a real edge to, I think, a lot of Jackson's mm. music, which, which, you know, some people would say is would even say might be a bit bland at times and then you've got these extraordinary things that Lindley is doing on on things like running on empty yes and and so you forth could, but i really think just keep, it just gives gives it this this sort of raw kind of edge that i absolutely love he was a phenomenal player fantastic and i think the you know the tributes to him from everyone have been so fulsome because yeah. he was obviously hugely hugely liked 
Yes. Yeah. Real eccentric. Yeah. Savant kind of figure yeah. as mm. well, I think. Gary Rossington, of course, uh, you know, uh, survived the crash. The, the sure, only, yes. He was the only remaining survivor, wasn't he? Yeah, but he's, he's one of the three who survived the plane yeah, crash. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and he was the co-writer on Sweet Home Alabama. Yeah, and Simple Man, not have, not Free Bird. That must have helped pay the rent over the years. It, it may have done, yeah. Right. Saw Skinner at uh, Nebworth, that was the only time I right. saw them. Just all these southern dudes with hats. And <laughs> <laughs> um, that old great was just special. In Filmed at Capricorn headquarters. Yes, yes, it was. It was That's a kind of PR right. thing for Capricorn. Yes, um, yes. Had all those bands. Anyway, have we? So we now have even less time. Um, no, I mean, I, I just just a couple of things yeah. to mention that's gone on is, is that last week we put in an interview with Ralph Hutter of Kraftwerk. Did I pronounce that? Did I did a pretty good job. German correspondent. Which I just recommend you read that everyone reads who's interested in Kraftwerk because I think it may be one of the best interviews I've ever, ever read with one of that band. I because mean, Tim Lott, who's a very good writer, has turned into a very good fiction writer. Was the, the writer concerned? And they talk as equals about things like Sachlichkeit and uh, other critical... And, and what is that? Uh, <laughs> Objectivity. 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 Um, uh, this week, I just have one quote. It's Jack Good being interviewed by Maureen Cleave for the Evening Standard in 63 on seeing Tommy Steele. He says, I hadn't been so excited since I saw a match between Spurs and Arsenal. The greatest <laughs> thing since Olivier as Hotspur. I thought to myself, clearly this is the life. I just... I love it. It's a Tommy Steele. <laughs> I love the Spurs hot Spurs. It's another Do great Maureen Cleave interview. As you know, I'm a massive fan yeah, of Maureen Cleave. Did you know Maureen? No. no. Um, she, uh, 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 and she's just very good at getting really interesting stuff out of people and then putting it in the pages of the Evening Standard. Mm. And that's really something. When, yeah. I, when anyone claims that American men invented music journalism in 1960, it's like, I'm going, fuck off, read more in Cleveland in 1963. <laughs> she was a, I'm a Nick Tosh's fan. Oh, oh well, yeah. yes. Yeah. Though, actually, the awful thing about Nick Tosh is that, I mean, he's just brilliant, but sometimes you really sing, and it, the... the, the it just makes you slightly cringe in terms of the way he talks yeah, about women. women. Well, him and a lot of writers. Yeah, that but he's a fantastic writer. Incredible. Um, not, was it not, uh, the Dean Martin. Martin. The Dean Martin. Oh, Dean Martin I love his, the Sunny Liston, his Sunny Liston book, Night Train. I don't know. It's that. fantastic. It's I think it, the Dino book, Dean Martin, yes, is, yeah. is, is a must read. Yeah. Also, I mean, Nick Tosh has just hung out with Jerry Lewis in a way that most people simply couldn't have, you know. The, the, yeah, and, hey, survive. and survive. And <laughs> live to tell the yeah. tale. Yeah, it's a great book. Uh, I think that's, that's, that's. I think that brings us to the cause of the day. It does bring us to a close. So, can I just ask one question, Rob? Because we've talked about these all these monstrous worldwide hits. What artists did you work with that didn't that that it, it never happened for? Who you thought could have been big? Well, I just I can come back to Terry Reid. There's a mm. thing that happens. I, you know, I have to tell my ne- nephew this, but it hasn't happened to him yet. When you have phenomenal success with something you've done mostly on your own, which I did with Enya, yeah. he did with Adele, after Enya sold 13 million records for a record no one ever saw coming, you have this power that I can do anything I want. Anything I touch will turn to gold. Mm-hmm. And I, I've seen it in lots of other people, yeah, yeah. but I've had it in myself. And I thought, I love Terry Reid, and he's never had the success he deserved. So I'm going to make a record with Terry Reid, and it's going to be phenomenal. 
and I made the record, it didn't work, and I suddenly came back down to earth. And it was something, it was a moment I think everyone who has a phenomenal success needs to have. And I'm still waiting for Jonathan to have it. But the the Terry Reid's album called The River is, I'm so proud of it as Mm. a record. And it is that one time dinner with Chris Blackwell. We spent the whole dinner talking about our failures. <laughs> you know, it started, it started with Jess Roden. Yeah, Jess Roden, yes, absolutely. So we, we well, it's, this... it's interesting you mention this because Rob Palmer, in a way, was the, one of those guys who did make it because mm. they're not dissimilar singers. I mean, when no, I hear no, Terry Reid, Robert Palmer, they're of that sort of British blue eyed soul sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And Robert Palmer made it, and all the Jess Rodens, Terry Reeds. I thought Jess Roden because I, I saw him, he used to be in a band called Shakedown Sounds yeah, in 65. Yeah, yeah. And I always thought, now this is because he had what Rod Stewart had and what Stevie Winwood had. He had he had all of that wrapped yeah. up in one, but and he yeah. looked great yeah. in the mod era. He looked yeah, fabulous, yeah. and I and that's what started me and Chris talking about failures. Right. But Terry Helicopter Girls, another one mm. that I thought was a terrific record, and I couldn't talk for three days when it didn't chart in the album charts. Yeah, and I, that's one of the reasons I retired. Ah. I thought the highs don't get any higher. Yeah, yeah. And the lows are getting far lower. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, that happy, oh, that happy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it just remains for me to say do visit Rock's Back Pages where subscribers can read over 50,000 articles and listen to over 800 audio interviews with people like Leon Russell. Check to see if your local library subscribes to RBP. If not, maybe suggest they take a free trial of the world's largest archive of music journalism. And thank you, Rob Dickens, for joining us today for what's been a really, really entertaining episode. Thank you. It's been great much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. That concludes episode 148 of the Rock Track Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Rob Dickens the host of Barney Hoskins, Mark Pringle and Martin Collier, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison-Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. didn't cover much but <laughs> <laughs> we skimmed the surface My, but then that's you your fault for being in the business so, you know doing sex so pistols Malcolm McLaren yeah. well not even mentioned thank you Alice uh, well we would have been here literally for four hours and yeah <laughs> It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 